0: It's good to have you here, and um, I pray that God will use these next few minutes in a really significant way for all of us. So, with that in mind, let me ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Jeremiah chapter twenty-nine. As we continue to make our way through the Bible, we were in Jeremiah weeks and weeks ago, and we paused there to step out and look at the life of Daniel, since. Uh, They lived at the same time, roughly, and last week we finished Daniel chapter 6, which is the dividing point in the 12 chapters of Daniel. So now we pause again in Daniel, and we come back to the book of Jeremiah to pick up the events there. Now, I know there's a risk in teaching through the entire Bible in chronological order rather than in strict book order as it is in your Bible. There's a risk of this becoming confusing and getting lost along the way. Um, I have been and will continue to do my best to uh, try to lay this out in a way that is helpful for us and easy for us to become familiar with over time. I mentioned to you a good while back when we got into around the middle of Second Kings and Second Chronicles, those two books overlap, right, right about the middle there, I told you that we had just stepped into some really tough territory in the Old Testament. There's lots of strange names and places and events, and just so many things happening at once to try to keep up with. And um, <clears throat> the news that I want to tell you today is that it gets worse. Um, so, so, so let's just um, let's fasten our seatbelts and let's do our best to, to to not run away from the tough stuff and things we don't understand. And, and again, you're welcome to talk to me after the service. If I haven't explained something properly, i will be glad to, to give it another shot. But I do believe if we persist in making our way through the Bible, especially the Old Testament, in this fashion, that it will pay dividends in the end like you've never experienced before because so many of these events that may have been just random disconnected events or people in your mind are all going to start to come together. Now, this, this section that we are in and will be in for um, the next couple of months is, in my opinion, this is my opinion only, it's the toughest section in the Old Testament. It's just very complex um, reading. But, uh, you know, because of my brilliance, I'm able to make it simple, <laughs> and so yes. I'm going to try to do that. So in, in order to try and help with that, i put some slides together just to give us a visual of what's going on here and, and trying to keep these as simple as possible. So on this first slide, this just gives you a little um, overview of when these prophets lived. Jeremiah was born first, Daniel shortly after that, and then Ezekiel um, lived and his life overlapped with both of those. Now if you go to the next slide, we've talked about these dates before, they are very important. 605 BC is when the first invasion Of of, uh, Jerusalem and Judah took place. Babylon came down from the north. They invaded Jerusalem and they took many people captive. Daniel was one of those people taken captive up to Babylon in 605 BC. Now the next slide, 597 BC, Babylon came back and they attacked Jerusalem again. History tells us they took 10,000 Hebrews with them this time into captivity. Among them was a man named Ezekiel, who we will be getting into the life of Ezekiel coming up shortly. And also, um, before we go to that last slide, right after this period in 597 BC is where Jeremiah chapter 29 falls in history, and that'll be important in just a moment. So, Shortly after this invasion, and people were carted off in 597, is when the prophet Jeremiah wrote what we now know as Jeremiah chapter 29. And then if you go to the last slide on this little chart, 586 BC, Babylon came back one final time and attacked Jerusalem. This time, they destroyed Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple, they set it all on fire, and that was sort of the final blow there. Now, the prophet Jeremiah was never taken captive during any of these raids, during these invasions. Daniel, as I said, was taken off in the first one. Ezekiel was taken off in the second one. But God left the prophet Jeremiah down south in in Jerusalem, along with the other sort of ragged bunch that was left there. You know, you can imagine how shell-shocked these people were, wondering when the next invasion was coming. And um, their cities burned, their beloved temple has now been destroyed and burned. And God in his grace, saw fit to leave Jeremiah down there in order to minister to those broken and hurting and confused people. As I said, shortly after that second invasion in 597, when Ezekiel was taken captive, Jeremiah wrote a letter to his brothers and sisters who had been taken captive up north into Babylon, and Jeremiah 29 is that letter and we're going to look at that today. It was sort of a it was sort of a wartime letter, really. That, that God put on the heart of Jeremiah to write, to give instructions to those who were taken captive up in Babylon, how to how to live, how to behave, how to conduct themselves. Now, now comes uh, one of the fun parts of this message. I don't know why I don't give these tough ones to the other guys. Um Everybody, everybody knows one verse from Jeremiah 29. Everybody knows Jeremiah 29, 11. And let's just go ahead and put it on the screen so we can see it before we even get there. All right. For I know the thoughts, or it can also be translated plans, that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. <clears throat> this verse has been cross-stitched on pillows and towels and blankets. It's been embroidered on sweatshirts. It's been printed on t-shirts and coffee mugs and bumper stickers and greeting cards. Uh, it's um, It's been posted countless times with pretty little backgrounds on social media. It's been quoted and shared with friends and coworkers and total strangers, assuring them that this verse was written just for them because God has a wonderful plan for their life. And all of this has been done with the best of intentions but I have the unenviable task of telling you this morning that that's not at all what that verse is for. People love to quote that verse, and rightly so, but do we ever stop long enough to examine the context of that verse and see why it was written and to whom it was written? That's what we want to do as part of this little exploration into Jeremiah 29, this morning. I, I, I think it's probably safe to say that no other verse in the Bible has been as misused as Jeremiah 29 11. Um, now please don't throw your crocheted Jeremiah 29 11 pillows at me during the service, although that would be better than stones. Don't, uh, don't go wandering outside during the sermon and gathering up stones. Um, my intention is not to destroy anyone's love of this verse. It's simply for us to take an honest look at it and be open to what this verse is really saying, who it was really intended for, and here's what I believe we'll discover in just a few minutes when we're finished. We'll discover that Jeremiah 29 11 is actually much more beautiful than we ever thought, much more expansive than we ever thought, far more inclusive than we ever thought. I don't like to use that word today, but I think you know what I mean. Um, because people, in quoting this verse, we have unknowingly, unintentionally reduced this verse down to something far less than it actually is. So I hope there's actually good news to come out of this by the time we're done today. Well, let's begin in verse 1 of Jeremiah um, Jeremiah 29 and pick up what's happening here. Jeremiah 29.1. Now, these are the words of the letter... That Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive. That means some of them had been, had died or had been put to death. The remainder of the elders who were carried away captive to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. That would have included Daniel. Would have included Ezekiel. You know, you have to wonder if they ever heard this letter when they were up there. We we. Uh, We wonder about things like that. And then in verses 2 and 3, it goes on to give us some um, additional details as to the exact timing of this letter. And this is one of the ways that we know precisely where it fits in the timeline of these events. It lists a bunch of names there that help us to place this letter exactly after 597. Um, And then the actual letter itself begins in verse 4. Let's look at verse 4 thus says the lord of hosts now whenever jeremiah speaks he always reminds the people this is god speaking not me he over and over again through his book he says the word of the lord came to me the word of the lord came to me thus says the lord of hosts the god of israel to all who were carried away captive whom i have caused to be carried away from jerusalem to babylon now i want to pause right here for a second and just wonder if you caught something between verse 1 and verse 4. In fact, put both of those verses up on the screen at the same time, verse 1 and verse 4. God literally just said in verse 1 that Nebuchadnezzar carried the people away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon, but in verse 4 it says, I have caused them to be carried from Jerusalem to Babylon. So who was it? Did Nebuchadnezzar carry them away, or did God carry them into exile? Well, the answer is both. God had warned these people for years, and and we've looked at this as we've come through Isaiah and Jeremiah, three times in Isaiah and 10 times in the book of Jeremiah, God, when speaking to his wayward people, used this exact phrase, these three words, from the north. He said to his people, repent of your sins, Turn to me. If you don't, I am going to raise up a king from the north to come down and attack you and take you into captivity. Years and years and years God repeated this exact um, pending judgment. I'm going to raise up a king from the north to come down and take you into captivity. And of course the people didn't listen and judgment finally came so what we see here and this is not the main point by a long shot but i just i don't want to miss little things like this if we have a moment to look at them what we see here are the plans of god and the activities of men somehow mysteriously merging together in a way that i could never explain if i tried The Bible says, in his heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. I have no idea how that works, and I don't care to know, actually. I'm okay with just trusting God with however that works out. God, just make my steps be your steps. That's really what I want. Somehow in the mysterious will of God and his sovereignty over all creation, having given mankind free will to choose him or reject him, somehow in the mix of all that, God raised up a pagan unbelieving king way up north, seven, 800 miles depending on the route in Babylon, named Nebuchadnezzar. God raised him up for the purpose of coming down to destroy his wayward people. What choices did Nebuchadnezzar have along the way? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how all that works. I'm just telling you, it does. And um, so we see a little glimpse of that here. Verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar carried them away. Verse 4, God says, I carried them away. So remember that in your daily life. Uh, There's much more going on than you and I can see with the human eye. There's far more taking place in our life. The things that, you know, we find ourselves in a spot that We haven't sinned. We haven't rebelled to get there. It's just, man, we look around and go, how did I get here? What in the world's going on? We must remember, if you're following Christ, he is at work in your daily steps, in your plans. Trust him in this. Lean into him in this regard um, and say, God, lead me where you would have me to go. Now, sometimes that's not always where we want to be. If you've followed him long enough, you know that's the case. But now God is bringing history together in a way that is far above the heads of uh, human beings to understand. So God raised up Nebuchadnezzar and sent him to the south <clears throat> to judge his people. Proverbs 21.1, I remind you, says, The king's heart, even the king's heart, is in the hand of the Lord, like rivers of water. And he turns it whichever way or wherever he pleases. Listen, if God has to, he'll use people, he'll use circumstances, he'll use events, he'll use flat tires, he'll use weather, he'll use problems, he'll use whatever he needs to to get your attention if necessary and to bring about his ultimate will in your life. Okay, now at this point, The letter takes, I would say, an unexpected turn if you've never read this before. I don't think anybody would expect to see this in this sort of wartime letter. You would almost expect Jeremiah to write up to them and say, you know, these wicked pagans who've, who've destroyed our entire uh, life down here, taken you captive, well, you rebel against them, you fight back against them, and now let's, let's, let's see what he says starting in verse five. He says to the Hebrews who've now been taken captive, Build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and have sons and daughters. And take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished. Verse 7, and seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it. For in its peace, you will have peace. These instructions to me are really pretty amazing. Uh, I don't think you would discover a letter from General George S. Patton to his troops saying, hey, be nice to everybody who, you know, if they put a gun to your head and take you captive, just love them, pray for them, be nice to them. Why in the world does God say this? Well, this fits into the... the much larger overall desire of God for his people, that through his people, his glory would be known to the ends of the earth, that all mankind would glorify him and praise him. That's the, that's the 50,000 foot view. But among these tens of thousands of Jews who have now been carried away into exile in Babylon, most of them refused to accept their condition. They grumbled, they complained, and they said, this isn't fair, we don't deserve this, we don't want to be here, how do we make this end? Now, I guess it, you know, does it need to be said that the essential meaning of the word exile is that you're in a place where you don't want to be, and this is the condition that they are in right now. And these people began to murmur and complain, just as their forefathers were back in the wilderness with Moses. They grew bitter, they grew angry, because they didn't want to be there. And I wonder, I'm not going to spend time on this, but I I just wonder, how do you and I respond when God has us in a place or in a circumstance where we don't want to be? Maybe you're not there through any fault of your own or any decision of your own. You're just in a place in life, you go, I don't like it here. I don't like what's going on. I don't like what's being done to me or said to me or how I'm being treated or how you know, my loved one is being treated or what they're going through with their health or whatever. And you just, you're just honest and you go, I, I don't like this. I don't want to be here. Are we learning as time goes by? Are we learning to submit to the hand of God to His will, for our life? And you know the, our emotions in moments like that are not mutually exclusive with trusting God. We must remember we're in this body of flesh. God has given us things called feelings and emotions. They're real. We can't deny them. It's not about saying, um, you know, "Oh, if I just believe hard enough." Um, This problem won't exist. No, that's foolishness. You hurt, you cry, you, you, you recognize what's going on, you deal with it, you wrestle through it. That's all the physical side. But that doesn't exclude us, even those difficult emotions, they don't exclude us from also learning how to say, God, I'd really rather be somewhere else, please help me to be content where you've put me. Most of the captives taken to Babylon were not in that state. And along with those people who were taken captive up to Babylon were the false prophets from down in Judah, down in Jerusalem, who had been preaching lies to the people down there. They had been prophesying things that were not true. They were the ones Jeremiah had warned them about. Some, I, all, I don't know, of those prophets were carted away to Babylon, and now they're up in exile with the people. And you'd think now, you'd think that these false prophets looking around at their surroundings would go, you know, that old boy Jeremiah, he was right all along. He told us this was going to happen if we didn't repent, and here we are. And boy, I'm going to get on the right track now. Sadly, that's not what they did at all. So now, in this letter, God has to warn his people not to believe the lies of these false prophets because they've cranked up their business again, their ministry again. Uh, You know, they've purchased TV time and, and all of this, and they're now proclaiming lies to the people in exile. Verse eight, verses eight through 10. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners or diviners, some people say, who are in your midst deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. Mm. They're not coming along saying, hey, we're prophets of Baal, we're prophets of Zeus, whatever. They're saying, we're from the Lord. We're prophesying to you in the name of, of Yahweh. Be very careful. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me on that day, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, yeah. Verse nine, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name, I have not sent them, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you, and perform my good word toward you, and cause you to return to this place. So what's happening here, it seems, is these prophets have spotted an opportunity to exploit the people Once again, these people who were in this weak, broken, vulnerable, scared condition, they started telling God's people, you're not gonna be here in captivity for 70 years. You're gonna go home, in fact, they said, you're gonna go home in two years. In two years, you'll be home and life will be back to normal. And oh, that sounded so good to the people's ears. It sounded far better than the message Jeremiah had given them. Yeah, we like two years a lot better than 70 years in captivity. So we're going to believe the false prophets. And isn't that the kind of preaching that people still want to hear today so often? Now, don't, don't give me that hard stuff. Don't, you know, it's almost like, it's almost like God and his word... And Christianity have become a drive-through, where people pull up to the speaker and they say, yeah, um, give me a large helping of grace, some extra mercy and love, Uh, hold the conviction, easy on the repentance. I mean, church has become a buffet line. where pastors literally survey unsaved unsaved communities and ask them what they would like to see in church. I'm really sorry, man. I'm not getting on board with that. I do not find that in the Bible. Yes, we're supposed to go to the ends of the earth to reach people, to love people, to be kind to people, and all of that. It's all true. But since when does the church of God ask unsaved people how to run the church can i just tell you um, when lost people come into the presence of god they should not feel comfortable now yes we, we try to offer comfortable chairs we try to have a comfortable climate friendly people all of that but look <clears throat> If God's word is really true, if it is the salvation for mankind and the only way, when a, when a sinner comes into the presence of truth, he should tremble. He should not kick his feet up and drink a soda and go, yeah, that's pretty cool. What are we doing as the church today? It's no wonder lost people don't respect us. It's no wonder. Okay, well, I got that out of my system. Where were we? you know it's it's remarkable to me until i look at some things in my own life from time to time that that these hebrews were literally now living out the judgment of god they saw it all around them they were literally in god's judgment and they refused to accept it still they wanted happy upbeat messages and so they turned to these false prophets to tell them what they wanted to hear But by doing this, they may have been comforted in the moment, but they were completely missing the renewing work that God wanted to bring about in them, a work that could only come through this painful discipline. This is such an important point for us. It's no wonder the Bible encourages us and warns us again and again, Old and New Testament It has so much to say about accepting the Lord's discipline and correction rather than fighting against it. Now, I don't like being disciplined any more than you do. It's not a pleasant thing. None of us wake up in the morning and go, boy, I hope I can get smacked around a bit today. I hope I can get taken down a few notches today. None of us want that. But the Bible urges us over and over again, don't run from God's discipline. Don't try to wiggle your way out of it. Accept it from a loving father, knowing that this is required in your life at this point for God to bring about what he needs to do in you. There's no other way. You can't get it from reading a book. You can't. Why is this so important? It's it's important because that very process of accepting God's discipline, of being under his loving but... Judging hand that very process is necessary To break us To humble us to purify us to drive us back to God You I'm pretty sure are like me In that you will not be broken or humbled or purified or driven back to God unless unless you're on your knees, unless you're hurting real bad. This is our human flesh, folks. It says, we don't need God. I mean, I'll go to church on Sunday, but I'm doing fine. And it's not until that blowout in life comes, and you look around and go, well, I'm in trouble. I do not have the mental, physical, financial, emotional resources to deal with this. And we go running back to God. And God doesn't stand there with his hands on his hips and go, well, 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 look who decided to come back. He's that father in the parable of the prodigal son looking every day for you. Oh, I wish they'd come back. I wish they'd come back. And when we're broken enough, when we're eating the pig's food in the pig pen, so to speak, and we turn and go, what am I doing here? My father has food to spare. And we get up and we go back to him He sees us a long way off because he's looking for us. And he runs to us. And he falls on our neck and kisses us and celebrates our return. But we would never come back if everything in life was going perfectly. It's his discipline, it's his judgment. That breaks us and brings us to that point these Hebrews were missing it again for generations God had warned them that this was coming and now they're in the middle of it and they go yeah I want to get out of this I don't see God in this at all I want to tell you if we try to escape from every painful situation that God puts us in we are short-circuiting the process that he wants to do in our lives. And once again, as last week, or I guess it was two weeks ago, when I stood here honestly and shared with you, I didn't know if I could bring that sermon on thankfulness in the worst of times. This one also today cleaned my clock. It really rang my bell. Because I'm in a, I'm in a situation I'd rather not be in. I don't like this. I'm tired. But I keep reminding myself Phil, you are a hard headed jerk sometimes. God has to take a little extra horsepower to get through to you. Let him do his work. Don't fight it, don't try to run from it. And so uh, almost daily, I I have to pause and remind myself, Phil, shut your mouth, put your feelings behind you, and just lean into God in this time. He's doing something in your life that cannot come about any other way. One of my favorite authors, uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, wrote this in the Gulag Archipelago. He said, bless you, prison. By the way, he was just snatched up with hundreds of thousands of other innocent people and thrown into the the gulag the prisons and it was horrific conditions and he found christ there he said bless you prison bless you for being in my life for there lying upon the rotting prison straw i came to realize that the object of life is not prosperity as we are made to believe but the maturity of the human soul that's beautiful now, I think it's important to, to reemphasize that Jeremiah's letter was not written to us. And it's not a promise to us individually. Now, hang with me here, okay? It was not written directly to us personally, and it is not a promise to us individually. However, The godly principles found in this letter and in verse 11 most certainly do apply to us. One reason we know that they apply to us, one of many, is because in the New Testament, Peter borrowed these same principles that Jeremiah expresses here in chapter 29, and he wrote them in his letter to the New Testament Christians in his day. Let's look at uh, just two verses here real quick. 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 11 and 12. Now this is 600 and I don't know 40 or so years after Jeremiah, these principles still apply. Verse 11, beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, just like Jeremiah's letter, 1 Peter is also a letter written to God's people, and in it, throughout this letter, you know, we talked through this letter years ago when I was young and far more handsome than I am now, he, in this letter, he uses these phrases over and over again strangers, aliens, exiles, foreigners, sojourners, and pilgrims. And he's reminding them of something we all need to remember. Since this world is not our permanent home, and we're surrounded by people who only have an earthly citizenship, our conduct should reflect the values of our heavenly citizenship. Just like those Old Testament exiles who were called to live exemplary lives in front of the world, the New Testament exiles were called to live exemplary lives in front of their world. And the Bible calls you and I to do the same. We live as exiles and strangers in a world that is growing ever more hostile Toward God. No, we're not. We haven't been carted away physically to a foreign land, to an enemy land, but we are strangers here. Listen, if I got to move on, but if you ever find yourself 100% comfortable and at home in this world, you are in trouble. I have so many days when I look around and go, I am a freak. Like, I just. I do not fit in here at all I feel like an alien I do but we haven't been called to run away and hide from the world we've been called to influence the world around us Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5 verses 14 and 15 he said you are the light of the world a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden he's saying that of our lives this is how it should be Verse 15, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Verse 16, let your light so shine before men, not hidden away in your own little cloister, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Philippians chapter two tells us a similar thing, verses 14 and 15. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault, where? In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. We could go on and on with that, but that's sort of the the, the general command of scripture. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. Easier said than done, I understand. But how do we know where the right balance is? Now, this is where this really comes down and sort of, as they say, the rubber meets the road here for me. This is where things really get real for me. Where do we know, how do we know where the right balance is between accepting the current conditions in which we live or speaking out against them and standing up and fighting back if necessary. Anybody know exactly where that line is? Didn't think so. I don't either. And I can tell you, we can fall into error in either of those two responses. Either accepting our culture and just going, eh, what are you going to do? Or rising up, taking a stand, speaking out, fighting back. We can fall into error on both of those responses our believers are believers supposed to shrug their shoulders and when they look at the world and go well our country's in a mess God's judgment is inevitable that's just how it is that's not our response when I study the New Testament the people and the patterns that we are to look to for our pattern When I study the New Testament, I see believers doing everything possible to live peaceably in their society and refusing to give in to the demands of godless leaders. They're doing both those things. One example, Acts chapter five, verses 40 to 42. One of my favorite passages in all of the New Testament. And when they, that is the most powerful ruling council, the most feared court in the land, when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And here it is and daily in the temple and in every house, they never stopped teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. These were not troublemakers. They were not going around throwing rocks through the the pagans' windows. They they, they were living peaceable lives. They were contributing to society. They were were trying to help the, the city and do all of those things. They would, I'm sure, pick up trash when they saw it. And yet, when the government, when the laws tried to force them to do something that was against their, their conscience in the Lord, that was against God's word, they stood up and said, take a hike. That's the Pike translation. Take a hike. We're not obeying you. God's people did that in direct defiance of the law. So let me wrap all this up here. How do do we know when to accept what's being forced upon us and when to stand up and refuse? We must remember, first of all, that we live in a nation with completely different governance than the Christians in the New Testament did. We have had... A thing called the Constitution it was once a respected document not anymore people are running roughshod over the Constitution and doing whatever they feel in government now I can let me just give you this example this could be on any issue you want okay any issue I can even separate this from my my Christian belief and my Christian convictions as an American I have been given rights by God that are recognized in the Constitution, that are recognized in the Bill of Rights. And I'm not going to give those up. I'm not stupid. Why is it everybody hates on America, but everybody wants to come here? And then all the celebrities go, well, if you know, so-and-so wins, I'm moving. They never move. I would buy the tickets for them one way, gladly, bye-bye. I'm, I'm not stupid, I, I want to make the right and full use of the constitutional rights that we have, they're unique in the world. However, just a silly example, um, I like apples, I eat apples quite often, but if we woke up in the morning and found out that the government had put a new law in place, forcing all Americans to eat an apple, I would refuse to eat an apple. (laughs) Has nothing to do with the apple. Honestly, I'm just weary of seeing Americans just roll over and take whatever is dished out to them, especially Christians. So where do we, how do we find this balance as believers? Now, we want to do the right thing. I know that about you. I know you want to do the right thing. How do we know what that is? How do we find that balance? Well, I think Daniel has given us a beautifully balanced example of this kind of life. That's why I'm so happy that we were able to study the first part of his life, and come back now to what Jeremiah is writing to these believers in exile. Daniel has shown us in the last few weeks how to live a godly life in a pagan culture. He accepted that he had to live in Babylon the rest of his life. He didn't want to be there. He wanted to go home to his family, to his friends, to his beloved temple. But Daniel accepted the fact that he was part of God's judgment. He accepted the fact that he had to live in Babylon, but he refused to let the king or the laws change his faith. He wasn't ugly about it. He just said, I'm not going to obey this. Same with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We've seen beautiful examples in the first six chapters of Daniel. Daniel. Now, those people in Jeremiah's day were in exile, as I said, because that was part of God's judgment on them. But the believers in Peter's day were exiles only because they refused to allow the law and the culture to change their faith. And simply by taking that stand, they became exiles, they became outsiders in the community, and they suffered persecution for it. And you and I, as I said a moment ago, we. We haven't been carted off physically to become exiles in a foreign nation, but we do live as believers in a land that is increasingly foreign to the principles of God's word, increasingly foreign. When you think about the letter God wrote through Jeremiah to his people in exile, he didn't tell them to start a riot. He didn't tell them to overthrow the government. He told them to actually contribute to the betterment of the city, to pray for it, To help bring about peace, all while knowing that they have a better home awaiting. And this is key as we close. God is saying in a very broad sense to them, make the best of your life where I've planted you right now. And that's a huge generalization, I know, but that's the big view of what he's saying to them. So how do we do that? Phil, this is easier said than done. Yep, sure is, sure is. Very easy to stand up here and proclaim all this stuff. A lot harder to walk out these doors and live it out. How do we live a life like this where we find that godly, right, appropriate balance? Because we know that even in challenging times, You and I have this assurance that even in challenging times, we can trust the overarching plan of God. Don't become, don't get tunnel vision in this life. Don't get tunnel vision in your problems where that's all you can see. Once in a while, we must say, God, please lift my eyes up again above the problem, above the circumstances. Let me see your bigger plan. This is a mess right now. I don't really want this to be my home. Whatever your situation is, that applies there. But God, even in the midst of this, I trust in your overarching plan. I trust in your great eternal plan for me, and I know I am part of that. Our hope is never going to be found in the present situation. It's found in the promises of God. So regardless of our circumstances, regardless of your circumstances, we don't have to become bitter. We don't have to become angry at God or resentful. Because we have hope beyond the circumstances. This is what God was trying to tell these exiles in Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. He was not writing to each person individually. He was writing to them as a group. Jeremiah 29 11 isn't saying that God is going to prosper each person individually in this life. It's actually promising something far better. It's saying that God has plans and a future hope for all his people collectively. That's what it's saying. All of us who belong to him are, in a sense, exiles in a land that is not our final home. And God is saying to us, look, I know, I know it's not always pleasant there, but while you're there, let others see me through you and always remember that I am coming for all of you to give you that blessed hope and that glorious future with me in a place where you really do belong. That's the promise. Jeremiah 29, 11 is way bigger than we've made it. It's not God's promise to anyone individually. It's a promise to his people collectively. And if you are in Christ, that is a promise to you. Oh, he may not swoop down right now and pluck you out of the problem that you're in, but in that problem... You can remind yourself, I'm trusting in his eternal promises. He has not forgotten me. And I am part of what he has planned, that great hope, that glorious future. I am part of that even now in the midst of this mess. That's where my hope is. And next Sunday, we'll take a glimpse of that amazing coming promise in Jeremiah chapters 30 to 33. Let's pray. Father, I know uh, as Americans living in a country where we're just used to getting things when we want them for the most part, we're thirsty, we just walk to the refrigerator and push a button and get some water. Lord, we've been so blessed and so spoiled that I think we have... I think we have forfeited the understanding of delayed gratification. And so whenever problems come up, whenever we're in a situation that makes us uncomfortable or we're in pain, whatever, Lord, our first response is to, to fix it right now. Get us out of this right now to something better. Father, I pray that you would work into us by your grace and in your timing And understanding that you place us in situations we need to be in, in order to humble us, in order to mature us, in order to bring us back to you. So I pray, Lord, you would enable us to take a longer view of these things in our lives. That we would face them, not with excitement necessarily, but with confidence and with certainty knowing you have not forgotten us, you've not lost sight of us, but through this process, you're doing a work in us. And I pray that we would give you room to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a broadcast from Life Point Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him.